Welcome to the New Books Network. The Polish-Jewish social theorist Zygmunt Bauman became a worldwide intellectual figure after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the subsequent opening up of Polish social sciences. He was especially well known for his study, Modernity and the Holocaust, which placed the Shoah in the frame of larger features of modernity, such as bureaucratization and rationalization. And that made him a worldwide figure after which he went on to make other important contributions to contemporary sociology. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Isabella Wagner, who is associate in the Institute of Sociology at the Collegium Civitas in Warsaw and fellow at the French Collaborative Institute on Migration in Paris. Much of her research has focused on the social conditions of work for artists and intellectuals. She's recently completed a biography of uh, Zygmunt Bauman, which appeared in 2020 and it is simply titled Bauman uh, Biography. Thanks for being with us today, Isabella Wagner. Thank you very much for having me. Great to have you. Um, so before we start in on Bauman, perhaps you could uh, start by telling us a little bit about your uh, earlier work or other work uh, on violinists and other artists, which obviously is an unusual kind of thing for sociologists to to study. Um, But what have you found in your studies of people who play the violin and the social circumstances of artistic creativity? Yes, this is a book called Producing Excellence. Uh, And uh, this is a book about uh, how someone became uh, uh, virtuoso. So mm. this is not about this classical, typical upbringing. It's about the socialization to be outstanding. And this is absolutely a sociological book about uh, the process of becoming the part of the elite, very narrow elite, and uh, which takes place uh, during the 20 years in a very specific environment, uh, surrounded with uh, exceptional people. And what I found uh, and what I was looking for, it was all sociological, uh, you know, processes behind, which are usually hidden and also not uh, always known to musicians themselves because they see their own uh, case and they're within this very uh, particular environment of parents and professors and competitions. It's a very competitive milieu. And I investigated over 100 people in this uh, engaging in this process so i deconstructed the idea of talent so talent is only a departure it's only a potential but after you have very different and sometimes contradictory actions that should be there and processes so this is a very complex issue and i was surprised because this book was chosen uh, as a one of the best book for uh, about the millennials uh, by um, 
Malcolm Harris here in the United States. So even if my sample was not just focused on American musicians, he found that it was a very good study for understanding the competition world, investment of parents, and all this sociology behind the production of excellence. Right. So was this Malcolm Gladwell? Or no, no, Malcolm? Harris. Harris, it was, uh, it is a, also a journalist and specialist of the uh, Gladwell didn't read this book, but okay. it was something which probably could uh, have uh, his, uh, you know, curiosity if he would, right. because it is also about those hours and hours, but mm -hmm. I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on the whole that those hours should be done in right. a sense of so social uh, interactions. Yes. Right. Well, it sounds like it confirms this this bon mot or axiom now that you know the way to get anywhere is you have to do spend ten thousand hours or something doing whatever you're trying to get good at. Yeah, but it depends with whom and how mm -hmm. you're spending it. Mm -hmm. So this is why sociology is very useful here mm -hmm. to understand that this is a very important process of selection of your collaborators because I'm working on careers and for me careers is not only one person and his her career, it's all this environment that you don't see generations before sometimes in intellectual careers and artistic careers certainly almost and whole staff of people behind you uh, who are working even if they don't think that they're working like, like parents for example very important figure in the production of a virtuoso i mean did you look at the united states or was this all in france or was this the so you you have various to various places around the world. Or? Yes, that that is international milieu, but international in a sense of mouse, not means that cosmopolitan, but international with different nations important there. Uh, and uh, previously, it was Soviet school of violin, which was the most important. It it, it was also historically. Uh, grounded this uh, story and after collapse of Soviet Union the best professors went abroad and developed different schools etc so violin school was even American violin school has roots in this part of the world and I did my study study in Europe today I would come here and extend my study to American settings, but it was done in Europe, but um, it's also valuable to United States. So there is no specificity. Right. I mean, I'm curious, uh, you know, totally uh, unaware really of the uh, research on this, but there's this uh, tendency that one now sees in, you know, young American settings um, where there are lots of Asian kids yeah. learning, uh, I think, primarily violin, but I guess maybe secondarily piano and, and particularly, you know, sort of training on the, cl uh, the classics of, of classical uh, music. Yes. And it's always a little, you know, what, 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 what attracts them to American Western, you know, classical music. Well, music itself certainly too, but it is also, and mostly for me as a sociologist, I see there the sociological phenomenon. And this is, again, 
excellence, production of excellence, yes, uh, uh, not in a sports, but uh, in a music. But also it is well known among parents and those uh, parents who are so focused on their kids that we um, we obtain with the violin and other musical practices, but in with violin particularly, this speed up of the brain function. So it's even this uh, perspective on I will push my kid also because it's good for his uh, general education mm -hmm. and uh, etc. But to my, my book was published in Chinese immediately, you can imagine, and it was like on the top of the cells and, and also in the sociology also recognized as a, one of the best books in sociology for the year where it was published, but it is not a manual how to become, it is very critical, so it is a critical approach, and I shows also, I show that these people, a lot of people in this trajectory are, are broken because the expectations are very high, but without these expectations and the hope and dreams, you cannot practice as a child several hours per day, because this effort have to be, you know, awake, justified, and the passion should be awakened. And how you do this? Mm -hmm. Only dreaming about, you know, being on the Carnegie Hall stage, not uh, elsewhere. So, and and all is about that. You know the famous joke about how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Right. Well, practice, practice, practice. Oh, that yes. <laughs> and actually, on the on the web, you can find amazing. During the pandemics, it was very hard for everyone, but for musicians in particular, and uh, it was just two American students practicing violin who developed a very popular, uh, you know, kind of uh, audition, and it was called practice, practice, practice. Oh, you're right. Interesting. So, I mean, I'm now very intrigued by all this, I have to say. And so I guess the question I want to ask is a sociological question about, you know, what is the, who is more likely to, you know, achieve excellence? I mean, are there, as I might say, non-meritocratic bases of meritocracy? Yes, but do you have to say, you have to know that everyone who is on this trajectory one moment is excellent but how to achieve visibility and here we have not meritocratic uh, and sociological absolutely features that they are coming in processes you know uh, because they are this is a little bit different like for actors for example because in violin for performing capriccio of paganini you have to practice years so you have to get into this level of technicity. So this is why I'm saying they're all excellent if they are able to perform well uh, or acceptably this, this program, yes? Mm -hmm. But after, it's everything matter of sociology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one imagines that, you know, wealthier people are in a better position to get the lessons and yes but you know that what your people they will perhaps not invest so much as parents of musicians i met parents who sold their house for buying the violin because this is the you know the good violin is like a good car in a race yes 
So if you invest and, and the prices are over several millions of dollars or euro, whatever you want. So there's a beautiful story in this book behind all this, this right. crazy passion. I'm now feeling like a bad parent, but anyway. And <laughs> I don't know, because you, you, you can think that bad parents are those who invest so much because it's like huge pressure and for the, the young kids are coping very well with this because they're young, but after it's a very uh, critical moment when they became adolescent and you have to, you know, you realize what's going on with me and with all this. So, and, and uh, so in other words, if you're not going to be the superstar, maybe it's hard on your mental health. Exactly. Yeah. On your own, your well-being. I don't know mental health, but in some cases, sure. But on your well-being, yes. Mm -hmm. But those people are excellent scholars. So mm -hmm. if you think uh, from the perspective of academia, hiring someone or, uh, you know, when you select people for PhD program, etc., those who uh, achieved kind of level in music, you can uh, select them. They know how to work. Right. And they tend to be perfectionists absolutely. For, for better or worse. <laughs> they, absolutely. They are already excellent. Yes. Well, all right. This is fascinating. Uh, and I hadn't expected to get into this quite so much because we were sort of going to talk about your Bauman book. But, um, you know, as I said before we started recording, I, you know, Bauman is a very significant figure, certainly in Europe and in certain respects is or was in the United States. But I think there's a difference in the kinds of things that American sociologists tend to study and be concerned about and that sort of thing. So um, so I think, you know, there's a there's a uh, center for Zygmunt Bauman Institute, I guess it's called uh, at the University of Leeds. But it's harder to imagine such a thing here in the United States. So anyway, maybe you could talk about, you know, how you understand his contribution. I mean, as I was saying in the introduction, I mean, Modernity and the Holocaust was a very important book to me, um, you know, in part because there was so little sociological attention to the kinds of to, to, yeah. uh, you know, the Holocaust, which is so pervasively important in history and to some extent in political science. Um, so anyway, tell us, uh, you know, what, what you found out about Bauman by writing a biography. Uh it was a long process and uh, I was not a Baumanist. I'm saying I was not because I am educated in France where Bauman is considered as a kind of public intellectual important, but not uh, apart this book, uh, The Modernity in the Holocaust is, uh, is not really also, France is uh, a little bit exceptional because uh, Bauman is very popular and uh, extensively read and practiced in uh, whole Latin America and Mediterranean countries and also in Scandinavia, etc., etc. So he had this large really repertoire. He's so eclectic that some um, environment and, and uh, uh, places are focusing and taking from him what what they want, yes, because of globalization, consumptionist, etc, etc. When I'm saying now I'm Baumanian because I'm working on refugees uh, as a phenomenon, also as a field worker, I, I'm ethnographer, actually. So this is why I see the huge potential in Bauman works 
for 21st century, our biggest problem, which is refugees phenomenon, yes. And the Institute, Bauman Institute, it was not his creation. He was like quite skeptical about this. It was his PhD students, uh, Mark Davis creation, and it works very well. He was the first director after uh, there's other directors and each director probably is giving more his, it was always male, we will see her perhaps in the future impact on what's going on here. It will be critical theory uh, and uh, globalization focus, but one part of the activity of Bauman Institute is Bauman's legacy, legacy and archives, because the family uh, gave everything what it was that, uh, you know, in his office, in his computer, even, etc., the documents, etc., to um, Leeds University, uh, University of Leeds archive. And yes, uh, so the activity of Bauman Institute is really diverse, but I think that um, the liquid period, because you didn't mention it, that what, what Bauman is most popular is in a academia, academia, probably modernity and the Holocaust, but for the whole world, it will be liquid uh, perspective, I would say, because it was several books with liquid term uh mentioned uh or or put in the front he joked a lot about this he was tired with this and uh, you know he was um when, when you see after 85 books that he published you you see huge development of his ideas and and uh, he he was uh not jumping from one to other it is a very clear development but the last part of his activity and this is why probably a lot of sociologists uh, could have trouble it it was may bowen wrote for everyone his ambition was to discuss with a large public after his retirement he said okay now i'm free and he was uh, it, it was in 1990 so he finished his uh you know work with the social theory etc and extended means the social theory is always there but the language is completely different and he's speaking not specifically about this country or that country he's speaking about social processes in general right so maybe you could talk about the the liquid idea and you know for those who are less familiar with it including me um you know what that's about i mean this is again uh, i think you know, a difference in European sociology as compared to American sociology, which tends to be more, you know, about specific countries and yeah. more empirical and yeah. more general kind of claims about the nature of social reality and things are looked at somewhat skeptically, I think. But that's the kind of thing that so, well, was contributing, I think. I, I think that they, um, knowing his life is something that help you to understand his books why because he is so general and speaking about just this some people are saying philosopher or or essayist but knowing his experiences you can put the link and in that uh, way you were you have this safe background for you to imagine that when he's speaking generally etc etc it is not like intellectual writing in his office it's really grounded in a biographical experience so 
liquid, uh, the term liquid uh, was not uh, put in this uh, uh, first position by him. It was his editor, uh, Politic Press, that found that it's very good and, and they developed. It was his metaphor, obviously, but it was one of the um, terms that he described the uh, the, the change in our social life and in our social relations and in uh, in everything it means that institutions from stable and strong became liquid or relationship to work became like this to love became like this all social um processes became liquid what is liquid it's it's not solid yes you stop to work with this inside of the same company during time the, the same trajectory i'm not saying the same type of job but you know as it was 100 years ago so this uh, stabilization is gone and we have to invent ourselves and to adjust we are adjusting because what he criticized also it was this dream you were in charge of yourself and you can do what you want this means that you would like to become this you have to put two thousand or twenty thousand hours or days in your work and you will be and someone said no no this is not at all like this this is your dream this is at how the system would like to believe you in but you will do you you will kind of kleenex we became the kleenex you know this idea of um instant adaptation but it will not last forever nothing will last forever yeah but this is a claim about historical social change right it is I mean, a, that this is now things are now liquid in a way that they weren't before they were more solid before. yes okay. but also in a relationship between people also he published this book liquid love where he is starting from the very classical hetero relationship but he's extending into other types of relationship also to the interactions with neighbors and he has this amazing chapter on refugees so it it is uh, going on and on and on with the same idea how our life changed how we have no permanent frame and our frame there is no Probably this frame is fragile and and flexible, and the word liquid. Um... Right. I mean, I'm you know deeply and profoundly aware that you know the kind of life I have because I have tenure yes. is unlike almost anybody else's life. Yes. And you know it does. And since I you know appreciate the freedom from fear about you know losing a job and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it strikes me as, I mean, there's a lot of concern with ideas, for example, like universal basic income, yeah. that it's just going to lead people to be lazy. And, and my reaction to that is to say, I don't know, I feel more secure. And I therefore, I think, feel, you know, less worried about doing experimental, you know, Absolutely. things and trying things that I might not have tried otherwise. And, you know, advocates of universal basic income have made this sort of argument. But I think, I mean, I suppose to some degree it's an empirical question. But, you know, there, in other words, there are things that one could do to mitigate the liquidity of the social world that we live in. 
And, you know, I mean, this ways in some ways goes back to the idea of the welfare state in the United yeah. States, the New Deal. Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, these four freedoms, one of which was freedom from want. And, you know, I'm inclined to think that from a certain degree of security, I mean, it's probably true that if people, all of people's wants are taken care of, they may be less inclined to take risks and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, I mean, with a certain kind of minimal uh, foundation that you don't have to worry about, you know, starving to death, uh, I would think that would give people lots of freedom to try different things and, you know, be more uh, inventive and risk taking for the society. I mean, for themselves, of course, but also for the society. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Bauman saw uh, Thatcher's reform and saw the change in this negative uh, way. Yes, he was uh, uh, absolutely supportive to this idea that we should have a decent life. And he was very, um, he was excellent observer and he was very uh, sensitive to poverty. Uh, Wasted Life, it's another book that he devoted to those who we don't see even, you know, they are there. And the, 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 this is how he's told always that this is the cost of our, you know, uh, the our development, yes, and progress, civilization progress is this, this amount of people that they are homeless and the amount of people that they are jobless and, uh, and the refugees and in, immigrants, illegal immigrants or legal immigrants, etc, etc. So he had this focus on that population. And about your question of this basic, uh, basic the level of basic stability, yes, and, and uh, safety. Absolutely, we see and several papers were published in uh, our academic work about what we are doing as a progress and how we conserve the knowledge and when you were precarious what you're doing basically it's not thinking about your future discoveries about getting the publication for getting the job for applying for position etc etc so this competition crazy competition makes you in a situation of inefficiency it's crazy to think that we are more, more efficient a little bit perhaps but in in this context that we have actually today it's the we have the empirical very good proofs that the scientific progress slowed down because of this context right i mean uh, you know again to go into this a bit further you know most people it seems to me are terrified and the more terrified they are the more you can get them to do what you want as far as work is concerned yes. I, I mean whether it really works out all that well is i suppose a different question certainly for the workers um but i think the more stability you have the more you're inclined to you know try new things and absolutely um, and you work better and, and and there is i mean you know this could be my own individual psychology rather than something generalizable but it seems to me that you know, if I had that kind of floor that protected me from, you know, destitution and, and hunger, um, you know, I would be not, you know, selfish and self-seeking, but grateful to the society that does that for me. Yes. Now, again, maybe that's my own individual but, psychology, but... No, but it is very interesting that you pointed out this. Bauman was socialist and he was convinced that this basics uh, healthcare 
should be extended and he paid for etc etc in uk you have lastly this process when uh, they're going in the inverse to obamacare uh, you know the, the decisions and he was sick and he refused to be um the patient of private system he's he waited for his turn even if he has really the money for going to the private he refused it he said why me as a richer person or a different person i should be different from other people who paid the taxes as i paid etc who worked here it is unjust and he protested against this injustice and by himself and uh, some, the, the members of his family said that perhaps he would he could live uh, longer. Mm. He, they weren't happy with that particular choice. Of his. Yes, but he yeah. said no, right. no specific treatment because I have money, and he was only on the basis, mm. you know, basic level. Mm. So it is really conviction to the end and the deep conviction because it is about the life in, in his. In this case. Right. So I want to kind of switch gears and ask you a question about, you know, writing a biography. Um, I recently had the occasion to talk with somebody about his his new biography of Ralph Bunch, the namesake of my institute here, and obviously a very significant figure in 20, mid 20th century uh, American politics and world politics. Um, but I mean, you know, like him, you, this is your first biography. I mean, yes. you don't think of yourself as a biographer per se. You said you were an ethnographer. Um, so what was that like? Why did you decide to do that? Um, you know, would you ever go back to doing something else? Yes. Or is it biography all the way down as far as you can see now? Or Yes, uh, I know it started with the project of a chapter about his career. I would like to do the book uh, looking in a mirror and about sociological careers of other famous or people and uh, extreme cases. Uh, as I am Hugesian after Everett Hughes, um, I, I like the extreme cases because it shows you the mechanism very well. And Bauman was this case of uh, career of, um, you know, exiled career. Uh, also the person who is in, uh, uh, in the situation of changing the language, which is important for us. Uh, and it, it is a huge challenge, but also this incredible development of career at the uh, time of the retirement, but also of this very uh, difficult uh, tension that he experienced, that he was loved and admired in uh, almost whole world, and he was almost hated in Poland, and he was rejected in Poland, etc, etc. So it was an image, he, he had this very different image from one place to other. And I did the first interview thinking about this chapter. And after I asked him if I can go to the IPN archive, IPN archives, this is the Institute of National Remembrance. And this is uh, the secret service, Polish secret service archives that are open to journalists and to researchers. So I could call consult his files, you know, the files about him, what he did, etc, etc. 
And there I found that contrary to what is largely shared in Poland, this conviction that he collaborated with the system, he was the part of the system during long time, etc., etc. He was very clearly um, against or tried to uh, do something in order to fix the authoritarian uh, and bureaucracy dictatorship. Yes. Uh, doesn't mean not being any more Marxist. This is not this, but changing this Marxist, making Marxist more Gramscian, yes, more human, open. They use these terms. And I saw so many evidences, and he had no biography actually. Uh, from the point of view, the writings about him by no Polish people, it was complete complete misunderstanding of the context because Polish context is quite complex and he was Polish Jew and this tension in identity he always claimed that he's both he has this mixed identity uh, which was uh, you know put under uh, questioning in Poland it's very complicated position mm -hmm. so I I saw that it will be not enough one chapter and I started to write his biography, but this is not intellectual biography per se, it is the biography life in the context, so this is why probably I have a good feedback from historians also about what is history of Poland and especially uh, Polish Jewish relationship uh in the 20th century because he's like amazing case study for showing how it evolved how we moved from interwar uh, racist uh, policy and social norms because policy is one but social norms really deeply grounded in the society and how despite of change of the system the, the social norms are there and how despite of these political changes after 89 Bauman after 68 was claimed to be uh, enemy of the state number one and after 89 he became also kind of enemy of the state of at least right wing and and uh, uh, all these people who believe in uh, judeo-bolshevism concept yes he is like a, a Weberian ideality of judeo-bolshevik in Poland today interesting well, obviously, people should read the biography. It sounds fascinating. Just one word. I'm working on another biography. Ah. Yes, and it is a, a biography of a woman, a wonderful woman, also 20th century life. She, is, she was born in 22. Uh, her name is uh, Alina Margolis Edelman. She was pediatrician and co-creator of Doctors with All the Boards. It, uh, yeah, of the world no no doctor of the world no without the boards she was on the beginning and after she co-created another organization uh medecin du, du monde doctor of the world doctors of the world okay. yes and you you have here also in united yeah. states abroad branches yeah and okay. i think even in new york so okay. she was holocaust survivor mm. and she had she has an amazing biography uh and uh, she was the wife of Marek Edelman, the mm. hero of Ghetto Uprising, and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Yeah. Yes, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, right. and uh, his life is well known, and he was a public figure. She created several missions, for mm. example, in Salvador, 
she opened the hospitals in Africa. She was in Yugoslavia during the just after the war, etc. So she she did. She's like the leader on humanitarian uh, actions and uh, you know humanitarian missions in the world. And she's invisible. Mm. So she's also a woman. So that right. that that will be the story. Interesting. So life. you are going to do another book. Yes. All right. We're kind of running out of time, but since you've mentioned that your uh, current work really focuses on refugees, yes. um, I want to ask you about the refugee situation in Poland. I mean, yes. I know you don't really live there these days, but uh, I'm sure your sources of information are many and and good. So maybe you could tell us about i mean there was a huge influx of refugees from ukraine a year ago i mean we are recording this on the first anniversary of the invasion. yes today is so, a very sad day right. and uh, yes poland um I, I just checked statistics on the border uh, we saw the 10 millions of entrants from the ukraine border uh, mainly, um, but, but also eight millions of go back means that who is back? That this is the males who will go to uh, be engaged in a war, but who is coming? Uh, they're the women because also it's for so they they are the huge restriction for male to 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 come. They they need it. Uh, today we have in Poland about one point two or four. Uh, millions of refugees from Ukraine and uh, it was a huge effort because uh, we had this those peaks and it was four millions yes on a spring etc and uh, this huge effort and uh, it, I was amazed to see how the civil society actually act because from the point of government etc it was a big story they they took for granted the achievements of, of civil society but it was really an organization, amazing organization of volunteering people who took in at home uh, the families, yes, because they were entire families. However, I should say something which is um, very, very sad. For over one year and a half, we have the uh, very hard situation on a border with Belarusia, and there we have refugees there they are coming from asia and they're coming from africa they're coming from afghanistan and mainly from syria so they're refugees yes for several years and unfortunately our authoritarian government is acting against the international law uh, european law but turning and, those people and away. yes pushbacking those people even women pregnant even children, the people are missing, the people are dying last week, uh, activists and the researchers, because yes, there are there researchers, some researchers, sociologists, anthropologists, historians, etc. We're in the forest, this is virgin forest. And with the climate there and also hostility, those people are dying. And this is incredible how human rights are violated and how we, we have the same society that can help to one population and other population, which is in exactly the same case, even not worse, is not. So here it, it is very difficult and uh, very difficult because human rights depending on your color of the skin. And that is uh, something uh, which uh, probably we should work a lot in Poland. 
and uh, we have many activists, many doctors, many researchers who are there, but not enough. And they are also in a situation or of acting illegally because some law were created as specialists of international law and Polish law are claiming that this is completely illegal. And as soon as this government will be changed, a lot of people will be charged for this. But for instance, the situation is horrible with with those refugees right well yes i mean i'm afraid that we've sort of forgotten about this whole other refugee crisis so to speak in in poland um, with the massive influx of ukrainians one one thing which is very interesting that uh and horrible it's one one point that the they were the law created to prevent the presence of the humanitarian organization in that part of the uh, country on the border, which is horrible. And uh, the second thing is that the local population is making immediate connection with the Holocaust. Means that they're speaking about hitting again people as they did previously for those who did it. Yes, because we know that it was not so obvious. Mm -hmm. But this connection because in, in reality, the people are hidden again, yes, mm-hmm. because they're in the situation of being pushed back, which is today equal to the condemnation to death. Right. Well, on that sad note, we're going to have to wind up for today. But I want to thank Isabella Wagner for sharing her insights about Zygmunt Bauman and about contemporary Poland and uh, his Zygmunt Bauman's contribution to sociology. Um, look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look, look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you very much.